Uh, how many of you have ever seen a movie that has alternate endings and you can look at the Blu-ray or anything and you could see different endings? This is kind of strange and we have to be honest and objective. And if you're a serious follower of Jesus and you have people in your life that don't follow Jesus, there are many who look at the Bible and say, nice bits of wisdom. There's some good in there, I'm sure. But the word of God, like there's all of these flaws in the Bible. Like take, for example, the gospel of Mark and we'll point to it. What are we going to do? Uh, well, as a church, we want to be a community that studies, that thinks, that works through the text. That's why we go slowly. That's why we're not in a rush. Because we want to be able to give an answer. Now, we don't have the answer to everything, but there is an answer to this. And so this is just one issue. And hopefully tonight, at the looking at the end of Mark, we'll also be able to think on a broader side of what do we think about the Bible? How do we know that the Bible is trustworthy? And how do we know to answer someone who says, well, what about those so-called flaws in this book that you hold as a holy book? What do, what do we do about that? So first we need to realize that there are three different endings over a period of time to the Gospel of Mark. Now, we're going to throw it up on the screen. The first one is what you see in the NIV, that it ends in verse 8, right? And that's where it, it seems to end. And then the New International Version has said, hey, there's this other part, but manuscripts, some of the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses don't have it. So we'll get to that in a minute. The second one is there's actually a shorter edition. There's verse 8. And then another little snippet in some of your Bibles, if you have the New Revised Standard Version uh, or the New Living Translation includes it as well. And it says, and all that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterward, Jesus himself sent, them through, um, sent, sent out through them, through east to the west, the sacred and imperishable proclamation of the eternal salvation. That's the new revised standard. The new living is slightly different. So you have one that ends with eight and then nine to 20 in brackets. Second one version ends with eight and then this edition. And then there's the third option, if you have the King James Version or the New King James Version, it just includes all of it, chapter 16, 9 through 20, all of it as the text without the disclaimer. Now, some of you are saying, wow, this, I didn't know that. And if you didn't know that, that's totally okay. But that's why we do this stuff, is to review it and figure it out. How in the world could there be three different endings? Well, uh, we're going to nerd out for a second. Is that okay? It's Sunday night. School's not coming for another 25 or 30 weeks, okay? This is going to be the endless summer vacation. But that's not true. It's coming in a couple of days. But we want to nerd out for a little bit. We want to think about this. And some may find this helpful. If not, tuck it away. But when in doubt, Madagascar says, smile and wave, boys. Smile and wave. <laughs> Do you remember the penguins from Madagascar? It was like the best. Smile and wave, boys. As it try Anyway. Trying to... Sunday night. <laughs> so, okay, so what's, what's the story here? Um, when we think about the Gospel of Mark, we make an assumption. We have an English translation or whatever language you speak or read. But we assume that this is based on something else, and it is. It's based on the original. When Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, when they wrote, they wrote in their common language, which was Greek. It wasn't English. And so they wrote in the language of their day, just like we read in the language of our day. But when they wrote in Greek, it eventually got translated into different languages, right? Now, what we need to remember is that early on, 
none of the people ended up with the original gospel of Mark. So don't get freaked out. We do not know where the original gospel of Mark is. It was written probably on leather, some sort of papyrus. And these are documents that don't last forever. We don't have, you can't go and say, this is exactly, look, signed by Mark. Oh, he's got a cool signature. You can't, you can't find it. So, well, wait a minute. Well, then how do I know that this is right and true? Well, when Mark wrote his gospel, they copied it and they painstakingly copied letter for letter, word for word, page for page. And so early on in the church, there were multiple copies of the gospel of Mark. So the English translation that we have is not based on one document. Problem with that is if you only had one document, what if that one's a flawed one? You'd be in trouble. Rather, our English Bible is based on a pool of copies that all agree with one another. And we have 5,000 copies that go as early as 135 AD, so about 100 years after Jesus, all the way through 1200 AD. What I'm saying, is, you say, what's the point of that? I'm saying is that there is more evidence about the text of the Bible than any other book in antiquity. You read Homer, Iliad, all of these ancient works, even things about Julius Caesar, all those ancient works are based on a few copies, usually six or 700 AD. We have Greek texts. Some, when I say 5,000, I'm not saying 5,000 complete Bibles. Some copies are just a paragraph. Other copies are uh, Gospel of John. Other copies are the entire Bible. But we have 5,000 to pull from that are, were found in all sorts of continents, in all sorts of countries. There is all sorts of evidence that what we have in the Gospel of Mark that's been translated to us comes from verifiable sources. So when someone says to you, there's all these flaws in the Bible, we could come back and not be combative and say, well, wait a minute, have you taken a look at the evidence? because there's evidence for what we believe. So we should be encouraged by that. Don't get freaked out that we don't have the original mark. We have more than the original mark. We have tons of it. Now, all of this is background. If this isn't your thing, just hang in there because there is payoff at the end. Now, since we don't have all of it, what, what most of the New Testament, especially Mark, is written on two huge, reliable, ancient copies, these, these manuscripts, um, and, and both of these do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. The most important manuscripts of the Bible, for those of you who really want to sound intelligent, the Codex Vaticanus or the Codex Sinaiticus, those of you who like fancy names, these are two like full, complete Greek texts. They don't have Mark 16, 9 through 20. And those are some of the most reliable. So that's where you get this disparity. So, so, so some of the Bibles, King James in particular, de didn't look to these particular manuscripts. And so they include all of those verses afterwards. Well, what do, we, what do we do with this? In a sense, what is the point? We need to recognize that, that most scholars believe that Mark actually ended at 16 verse 8. And that's why the NIV does this. This is just good to know. So there is part of it that was attached to the text, but why do they keep it in it? Because for hundreds of years, as the Bible is translated, verses 9 through 20 were in there. So who wants to be the Bible guy who pulls verses out? Like, sorry, you don't get those. And it's, if you take it out, Mark ends really abruptly. So 
well, then think about it. Why, why would someone add? It's about 200 years after the time of Jesus that these verses 9 through 20 start showing up in some of the manuscripts. So it's about 200 years later. Here's what we think. Here's the best guess. That these good, honest, Jesus-loving people, as they were reading the Gospel of Mark, they looked at it and realized this is an abrupt end. And what they did was, what if someone only reads Mark? Because most people did not have a complete Bible. A church could have just the Gospel of Mark. They didn't want anyone to miss out. So what they did was, if you read the end, it's actually bits and pieces of Luke and Matthew chimed in with a few other statements in between. So these copyists, we think, were trying to do a good thing and say, oh, wow, there's more to the story. Jesus did this and Jesus did that. And the disciples went out. And so they added these other pieces of the Bible and they tacked it on to the end. But some of it, like the snake handling, you don't see in, in uh, drinking deadly poisons. You don't see that as well. And so we have to admit some people, 200 years after uh, the time of Jesus, they added these statements. So this leads to the big question. If all of that background led to, oh, what do I do? Can I really trust my Bible? Fear not. Here is the takeaway. How do we read Mark 16, 9 through 20? Well, I think we, this is what we have to say. It's good information. Everything in there is good. Most of it is Luke and Matthew squashed in to the end of it. But at the same time, we have to be careful because of what we believe about the Bible, we have to look at it and say, you know what, good information, but I'm not gonna build an entire worldview on those verses. There's good information there, just like all of us have a favorite author, uh, some of you, whether it's Francis Chan or whether it's Tim Keller or whatever author you love, your author that you love says a lot of great things. Is it honest enough to say that your author isn't perfect, right? They're not, they're not perfect. They don't get everything right. So you take the good and you throw away the not so good. Well, in, in this particular case, at the end of Mark, we have to say, well, it's good information, but I'm not going to build a whole theology. So there are a small few group of churches that are hyper-fundamentalists. They take everything literally and in the Southeast handle snakes. I don't know if you've ever seen this on like Discovery or anything like that and do snake handling in their churches because the Bible says they'll hold snakes and they won't get bitten. Well, a couple things. One, that was not what Mark wrote. That is not in the original text. So eh, your translation is slightly off. And so that doesn't hold up. Second thing, Handling snakes is just dumb. Can we just put, call it that? That's just like practically like, what are you doing trying to test God? And this all leads to a bigger point. I wanted to, to deal with this and I'm going kind of slow on it because I want us to look at a more important issue. How do we handle the Bible? Why do we take the time to study it and look at it? And here's a distinction. When it comes to the scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We believe this to be true. And as a church, you just need to know if, if this is your home, this is where you decide to plant some roots and grow and serve, that we take the Bible very, 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 very seriously because we believe that what God has said is God-breathed. Now, now I'm going to go slow on this, but I want you to get it. What is God breathed? 
is the New Living Translation, the God-breathed, the English Standard Version, the New International Version, the King James Version, the Spanish Version. What do we mean by saying that all God's words, all Scripture is God-breathed? What is Scripture? We need to make a distinction. This is going to be helpful. If you want to grow in your discipleship to Jesus, is that we make a distinction between what God said to the author, Mark in this case. Mark wrote a gospel. The Spirit of God used Mark to write the biography of Jesus. That we believe is God-breathed, what Mark wrote down. So if Mark didn't write down verses 9 through 20, we hold it as good, but we're not going to say it's God-breathed. We're not going to say we're going to build our life on those things that Mark did not write. Therefore, why do we take so much time to go over words in the teachings here? It's because we believe that because what God has written is God-breathed, Scripture is God-breathed, and by the way, by that I mean God-breathed life into the original manuscripts. The original, what, what Mark wrote, that is what we hold onto. And out of that, it's been translated to English and French and Spanish and Swahili and every other language. It's why we're not afraid to say, and you'll hear this a lot, when we're reading through the, the NIV and say, oh yeah, the NIV puts it this way, but another version says this, or another version says that. Because we hold such a high view of what God has said, we realize any word in one language doesn't have an exact, precise synonym in another language. It doesn't work that way. So we need multiple words to translate what has been breathed out by God. Does that make sense? This is a little bit of a background and more of a, a lecture than a, than a sermon per se. But this is where we find ourselves uh, needing to get a grasp on this. So our faith is not shaken when someone says, do you know that there's multiple versions of this, that, and the other? We could say it's no problem. We hold that what was originally written by the author has been held up. And that's why we have the 5,000 copies. And that's why we have plenty of evidence for all that we have in the New Testament. We have nothing to worry about. This book holds up. All right. So, so, so that's a little bit of the background. Now, where do I stand? Where I stand does not matter. My opinion is really small. I think, though, Mark ends at 16, verse 8, and he ends it with a cliffhanger because Mark's more important about you knowing that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God and what happens after is his resurrection. He tells us about the resurrection. What happens afterwards doesn't seem to be. Mark is very quick and to the point. He doesn't add on a lot of details. I think it ends there. But herein, make this distinction. What I say, hold it with a grain of salt. What a Bible commentator says, hold it with a grain of salt. What God says, hold absolutely. And so we need to, we need to discern and we need to be growing in our thinking. And it's okay to learn and grow and change our mind on occasion. And, and does that, is that helpful? That's, that's where the Gospel of Mark ends. Now, all of that lecture has thoroughly got you looking forward to ice cream. Because you're like, man, get me out of here. What have we done? My day was good. The sun was shining. I got a sunburn. And then this dude just unloaded on me about the Bible. That is how Mark ends. Pause. Okay, that's, that's the first half. Now, but in light of that, if, however it ends, what is the gospel of Mark about? And that's where we'll, we'll just take the rest of our time 
to think this through. I want everyone in this room to be able to get a grasp, two to three sentences, to describe the entire Gospel of Mark. So you're going to start by helping me out by faith. You tell me, give me a sentence about what the Gospel of Mark is about. In your own words. Okay, the Gospel of Mark is about silence. Silence. Okay, I got that one. All right. Smile and wave, boys. Okay. I'm sorry? Uh, Gospel of Mark is the message of Jesus. Very good. God's kingdom is God's kingdom is coming. Very good. So God's kingdom is here, but it's not here. It's coming. Right. Excellent. Hello. Bring on Germany. Jesus Christ <laughs> is the true king. Yes. Uh, exactly. Just like he said it. In the end, they'll speak with tongues and handle snakes. Anyway. Uh, anyway. Tongues, languages. It's all, it's all good. Okay. Yes, any, anything else? I'm, like, I'm not going after the German. <laughs> okay, this, this is good. So here's what we want to do uh, is we want to think about, and I think you're right on it, Simon, as to what the gospel of Mark is all about. We're going to throw a slide. This actually went up week one, if you were here, and it breaks out the gospel of Mark into to kind of two parts with a pivot in the middle. Uh, Mark one through eight is about a king. And Jesus is that king. Uh, and is, the king is here and his name is Jesus. So Mark 1 through 8, the beginning of it, is all about stacked up the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. It's stacked on the front end because Mark wants us to know what the king is all about. So look in your Bible and go to Mark 1, 1. And we're going to do a very brief survey. We'll hit about three verses. So Mark 1, 1. I just want you to get this. We've been in it for a year, but we could miss the forest from the trees if we're not careful. Really, Mark is telling us a biography about a king. Verse 1 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And we looked at uh, in week one that the Son of God is also a reference or could be translated a king. So Jesus, from the first sentence, Mark wants us to know, is the one that Israel was waiting for. Thousands of years, we have all this Old Testament history. God has a people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all the way down the line. And God is going to rescue these people and he's promising a Messiah to do it. And what Mark wants us to know is there's lots of people claiming to be king. Remember, he's writing to the church in Rome. And in Rome, there's one king and his name is Caesar. So his biography of Jesus is a slam in the face. Imagine if someone right now said, there is a president and he's not in Washington, D.C. And his name is not Barack Obama. Here is the president. He is the ruler. That's like, I'm sorry, did you not make the elections? Did you, do you not realize who's sitting in the White House? Who's got the army? No, 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 no. There is a different kind of king. So Mark is telling us that in this world, there are many people claiming leadership, but but there's a true king, and his name is Jesus. Now, it takes a long time for anyone to get that. So go to Mark 8, right in the middle of the gospel, and the guy with the cool little head graphic in the middle, if you're into that. Evidently, that's Peter. That's what he looks like. That's a, it's, it's slightly photoshopped, but there he is in all his glory. So Mark 8, verse 27. So all of this... He gives us eight chapters describing what Jesus has done, but no one really gets that he's the Messiah until 
the pivot of, of Mark's gospel is someone finally gets it and it happens to be one of his followers. Jesus and his disciples went out in the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. What about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. So Mark is announcing there's a king with a kingdom. And here's the king. This is what God's kingdom looks like, and it's coming in the person of Jesus. People don't get it. Now I'm going to get to how that applies to us in a minute. Don't go there yet. People don't get Jesus for who he is. It takes a while. Finally, though, someone after spending probably two to three years announces by the Spirit of God, yes, Jesus, you're not just another prophet like John the Baptist. You're not just another prophet like Elijah. You are God's deliverer. You're God's savior. You are the Messiah. And he says, hold up, don't tell anyone else yet. Now, why does he want anyone to know? Because the second half of Mark, and if you just want to tell it in a few sentences, is about expectations. So Jesus is a king, but he's not the kind of king that you're expecting. So Caesar lives in Rome on a throne. Jesus travels from place to place and is dirt poor and stays from house to house. That's not what a king does, but he's not like you expect. Uh, Caesar's rich and can take any money from anyone at any time. But Jesus says it's more blessed to give than receive and lives this life of generosity and doesn't seem to have much, but always has enough and he's willing to share. He's, not, he's a king, but he's not like the king that you're expecting. Caesar has an army and a military and, and artillery and the willingness to crush you if you go against him. And Jesus brings a way of peace and forgiveness. He is a king, but he's not like you would expect. The reason that Mark takes the time to lay this out before the cross is that when we think about our faith, if people knew Jesus for who he was, everyone would follow him, guaranteed. If people got a glimpse of Jesus in all of his glory, everyone would follow him. But we live in the same world that Mark's living in and that the early church is living in. The message of Jesus has happened, but people don't understand who Jesus is. He's a king. They think of him as a good teacher. They think of him as maybe a healer or a wonder worker or a philosopher or a sage, but they don't see him as the rightful king that they should give their life and allegiance to. And they don't understand what it means to be in allegiance to Jesus, to be one of his disciples, to be one of his followers, one of his learners, one of his apprentices. So just like the church in the early days had a tough time explaining Jesus, we live in the same situation. It's 2,000 years later, plenty of Christian bookstores, plenty of TV and media, plenty of blogs, plenty of smack talk, but people still wrestle with Jesus. And this is why we need to know this gospel because Mark tried to share the story just like you and I are called to share the story. Now, here is some good news. Go to Mark 15. So Peter gets it eventually. But who's the first person? And we covered this just a few weeks ago, but it's worth looking at again. Um, Mark chapter 15, verse 39 This is after Jesus dies, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And then it says, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Remember, Mark wrote at the beginning 
I'm writing so that you'll know Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Peter, one of his close followers, takes him two years to get there, but he gets there and gets the Messiah part. But in a strange twist of events, a non-Jew, a Roman centurion, one of the guys guilty for killing Jesus, is the first to get it that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is a king. He's a centurion. He's under authority. And somehow he gets a bit of who Jesus is. And that's how the gospel ends. Right after that, we see a few more verses. And what does that tell us? There's all sorts of surprises when it comes to the gospel. The gospel is full of surprises. This message that we have, some of the people you think would get it quickly, Peter, James, and John walking with Jesus, it takes them years to get it. You can go to church for months. You can go to church for years. You can go to church for decades and not know who Jesus is. It happens all the time. I meet people all the time who've been churched their whole life but have no vibrant connection to the Messiah, have no vibrant connection to Jesus. You could be here trying to figure it out and not get it yet. Here's the good news. You keep pressing in and you will get it because Peter does get it. That's the good news. Some of us are slow to learn, but in the middle of the gospel, Peter gets it. But here's the flip. We also get the surprise that the least likely guy, Roman centurion, is the first to proclaim Jesus as the son of God. And what does that say? You can walk in off the street. You could be the first week that you hear this good news and you can embrace it and understand that Jesus is the king. And we get that in the gospel, that it's full of surprises. Some are slow to learn. Others are quick to receive it. You never know what's going to happen when Jesus is around. So what am I saying? I'm saying that in light of the gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and in light of how Mark lays out the biography, we need to remember that there are still people who need to see the real Jesus. There are people, and this is where, this is where the rubber meets the road. Some of you have been waiting a long time. Jose, make a point. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Here is the point. There are people who still need to see the real Jesus. And here, 2014, on the Sunset Corridor, I'm thoroughly convinced, because I live in the neighborhood with you, many of the people living on my block, in my neighborhood, where I shop and where I do life, do not know the real Jesus. But we are here. So the end is just the beginning. Remember I said it, first statement. The end is just the beginning. The end of the Gospel of Mark, the reason I think that Mark ends it abruptly is it's not the end of the story. The end of the written Gospel is the beginning of the Gospel lived out in everyone who embraces it. So the end of the written word is the beginning of what now you and I get to experience. So now... You and I have the biography of Jesus. We actually have four, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And then we have all these writings that kind of tease out. We have Peter, and we have John, and we have James, and we have Paul writing about Jesus and giving us information about the implications of Jesus. We have all this stuff. We study all this stuff. But the point is not for us to just get head puffed. But rather, there are people who need to know the real Jesus. And now we are his living witnesses. And so we have the gospel in our hands. We have the gospel in our brains. The question is, will we be like the early followers who went out and shared the gospel with others? The good news is that you have good news to share. You have something to share. You have something to give. And as a community, I think it's so timely that we're ending this gospel study at the same time we're about. And we didn't time it this way. I wish we were smart. We're not. Um, but we're ending this, and in a couple of weeks, 
September 14th happens to be the Sunday that as all three churches and our family, we've marked out every year on that, that mid-September, let's come together and share the vision of the church for the year and remind ourselves about what God's called us to do. So our elders have been praying and thinking and fasting and, and kind, kind of discerning, God, what are you doing? And, and we want to share that with you starting September the 14th. It's funny, the end of Mark's gospel is just the beginning of our story and our chapter and what God's calling us to do and be. And so, so for us, where do we sit? One last passage and, and we're through Mark 1. So you say, okay, okay so, so we're ending this gospel and we have the gospel. What, 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 does that really, what does that really mean? Mark 1, verse 16. Uh, and if you don't have it in front of you, I decided to throw it on the screen. I think we find ourselves in this spot, this very spot. And Mark puts it in the first chapter. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Where are we as a community? We're at the beginning. See, the end of Mark's gospel is just the beginning of the story. And, and early on, Mark lays out what it should look like. Jesus encounters a couple of very ordinary people. Here, Simon and Andrew, they happen to be brothers. They already have a career. They already have a family. They already have a spot. They already have a future. And Jesus comes and meets them where they're at. And when Jesus comes and encounters them, everything begins to change because he elevates what he has for them. He, he gives them a window into God's plan for their life. And you know what God's plan for them is? That they would be fishers of people. That the same energy, that the same tenacity, that the same drive that they have to fulfill their family trade and do their career and make their money and raise their kids and send them to college, ducks, beavers, or any other animal, and all that they do. There's more to life than that. And so what, what Jesus does is he shakes it up and he says to them, I'm going to cause you to fish for people. I've got people on your radar. So the end is is really the beginning. We've looked at the life of Jesus, but now we want to challenge ourselves. What about the people who don't know? What about the people who, who have not spent the time to consider who Jesus is? What are we going to do? And Jesus, who speaks to Simon and Andrew at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, but he does it through calling people alongside him. He says, I'm not going to just go and I'm not going to rent airtime and I'm not going to appear in the clouds on CNN so everyone will see me and follow me. If Jesus revealed his glory, two options. We'd all follow him or we'll all drop dead. And I don't know which would happen. I think we'd all drop dead if we saw Jesus fully for who he is in all of his glory. But he's chosen instead to raise up people like us. So we want to be a community that is not just about our growth, but about getting this good news to other people. So, so where does that hit for us? I'm giving you a bit of a teaser. Uh, our vision series for this fall will be based on this phrase, but I want you to sit in it now so it's not a surprise. What do we feel? Our elders, we spent some days in January of this year just praying about the year and praying about God. Can you just clarify to us what we're about? Not who we want to be, but who are we really? And this is a statement that I hope will just in some helpful way for you clarify what we're about. And it's help people experience life in Jesus. The heart of Mark 1, Simon, Andrew, 
I want you to fish for people is he wanted to raise them up so that they could help people experience life in Jesus. And we want to be that kind of community. Now, what does that entail? We'll get into that in a couple of weeks. But we believe, and I believe, and I just want to be a part of a community that doesn't exist for its own good and its own experiences and its own gatherings, but rather to be a people who are are looking for those who are far from God. And we're not ashamed to talk about Jesus. And we're not ashamed to answer questions. And we're equipped and we're ready to engage people where they're at so that they will experience life in Jesus. And you say, well, well, can, can we really make a difference? Did you know when we went to plant this church three years ago, I read a, a, a report, um, a demographic report put on by some church planting organizations. And they did some demographics of where we live. And they looked at all the churches that were here and the strengths and weaknesses. And they looked at the population growth. And they looked at the business growth. And they evaluated everything. And they evaluated the entire Portland metro area. And where did this group, a neutral group from outside, where did they say is the number one needy place to plant more churches? Hint, hint, hint. You are sitting in it. The number one place right now in need per population, where the growth's going, where the trends are going, in need of more gospel-sharing churches is the city of Hillsborough, number one. The second one is the urban core of downtown Portland. And isn't it funny that a church that started in Tigard planted two churches? We didn't know this. We planted them first and then realized it after the fact. In the urban part of downtown Portland and here in Hillsborough, God has something for us. And they, in this report, gave a startling statistic. It haunts me and excites me at the same time. There are, in the Washington County area, within a pin of where we're standing right now, 200 to 250,000 people who have absolutely no church connection at all. 200 to 250,000 people in our county that don't affiliate with anything to do with Jesus and any house of worship that calls itself Christian. Now, can some of them be following Jesus and just unchurched or dechurched or burnt down church? Absolutely, yes. But it haunts me and excites me at the same time because it reminds me that the end of Mark's gospel is just the beginning of my story. And the reason I'm here and the reason that you're here is yes, to enjoy Jesus, but more than to enjoy him is to partner with him so that we would see everyone. What would it look like if everyone, all 200,000, had some sort of touch with a believer in this community, not just in our church, but within the other great churches in this area, and everyone had a chance to discover who Jesus is. If everyone had a Christian that they could see, well, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus in the way that you work, in the way that you live, in the way that you parent, in the way that you speak, in the way that you act. What if it was true that everyone got a taste and touch of who Jesus is in this place where we live and serve? That's what I'm living for, and that's what we're going for. And so I would encourage you, in light of Mark's gospel, we got to think about our turn. You're here, and you have this in your hand, and now what are we going to do about it? I just pray that we will this fall, not just fall into the routine of football or whatever you do in the fall or the routines and the rhythms of life, but rather we would allow God in these last few weeks while the summer ends to begin to stir us. What is it? that you're called to do that will help people experience life in Jesus? What is it that you need to change this fall so that you have room and margin in your world to help people experience life in Jesus? If you are part of this community, 
then part of your calling as a Jesus follower is to help people experience life in Jesus. So what are we gonna do? I don't know, but we are going to pray that God would speak to us and that we'd have the faith to believe him.